Good morning. I also welcome you in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who is risen. And I just want to add my voice. I know that Logan acknowledged this already, but my voice of thanks and praise to God for the Dobbs decision last week. We rejoice in that. It's been 49 and a half years, so longer than I've been alive, that faithful believers have been praying for that. And, and I'm just reminded, 1 Corinthians 15 says that Jesus is ruling and reigning, and that he must rule and reign until all his enemies are made a footstool under his feet, and then the end will come. So that's what he's doing right now. And this is just a manifestation of that. We expect more and more things like that throughout world history that would just be manifestations of his rule and reign. And we continue to pray for repentance in our nation, that 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 would not just be a decision at the highest court in the land, but that the people of our land would repent and turn to Christ and know his forgiveness. So praise God for what he's doing, and we continue to expect more of his mercy toward us. I want to invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 15. We're going to be in verses 1 through 13. Maybe you've noticed how conflict in relationships can make any relationship feel hopeless. You ever notice that? Where there's division, there tends to be despair, at least really low morale. We speak of irreconcilable differences, right? Differences can be so extreme that we say a relationship has come to an impasse, a stalemate, a deadlock. Those are ways we express the hopelessness of the situation. The only way forward is sever ties, go our separate ways. That's true at every level, from relationships between siblings, relationships between spouses, all the way up to a nation as a whole. The more divided society feels, the more helpless and hopeless many people feel about it. I just see no way forward. I don't see how these sides could ever agree, ever get along. Where there's division, it could be in a team, in a company, morale tends to be low. This is how marriages crumble. It's how families splinter. It's how churches split, leaving everyone devastated and and disillusioned. Division is discouraging. And I assume you've experienced that. Differences can be emotionally draining. And it's tempting to quit and to give up on people. I mean, it's just not hard to get excited about idealistic visions of community. Like, how great would it be when everybody surrounding me makes me feel good? That would be wonderful. Church, school, work, home, all those things. But the reality of life in community is often another story. As we like to say, everyone's normal until you get to know them. Different people have different ways of doing things, and differences tend to lead to tension, and tension often leads to conflict. And since Romans 14, verse 1, Paul has been teaching disciples of Jesus in the church in Rome and us how to deal with differences over issues that are not necessarily right or wrong in and of themselves. And all of that discussion comes to a conclusion here in chapter 15. So this is part three of three parts as we've been looking at Paul's addressing of this issue. And here in Romans 15, 1 through 13, God offers you hope. Hope that gospel community can and will succeed in spite of all our differences. 
So I want to invite you to stand with me if you're physically able. As we read God's word, we stand because we revere God who speaks to us through his word. Romans 15, 1 through 13. This is the very word of the Lord. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement Grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy as it is written, therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Let's pray. Father, we come to you as the God of endurance and the God of encouragement and the God of hope and we trust that through your word, these things that have been written down for our instruction, that through your word you would fill us with hope. Make the people of Emmaus Road Church, abundantly hopeful people, joyful people, glad people who are thrilled to share their lives with one another in accord with Christ Jesus for your glory and your praise to the ends of the earth and get glory for yourself, O God, from the rising of the sun to the place where it sets that all peoples would praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. So here in Romans 15, Paul's continuing to address this subject that he introduced back in chapter 14, verse 1, differences in the Roman church over issues that were not moral, not doctrinal in the sense of primary gospel doctrine, but differences of views about diets and and which days to observe in the church. In chapter 14, the instructions were more passive. They, They essentially could be summed up in leave each other alone on these issues. Right? Consider Romans 14, verse 13, which summarizes that whole chapter. You have all the commands summed up like this. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Got it? Don't judge your brother whose practices differ from yours. Don't cause him to stumble by forcing him to conform to your ways. All right, leave each other alone. So far, so good. Except... Leaving people alone, that might work for libertarianism, but that's not gospel community. That's not how the church works. Once sinful attitudes and sinful practices are put off, new godly attitudes toward one another have to be put on. Godly practices are to characterize 
our lives. In Romans 15, the commands are much more active. Verse 1, bear with the failings of the weak. Verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. Verse 7, which captures the main point of the whole passage, therefore, welcome one another. Receive one another into your lives, into your homes, into your tables. Receive one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Anyone can walk away, part ways when the differences are too much, but bearing the burdens of those with whom you disagree, putting the needs of others, others with whom you disagree, putting their needs before your own, warmly welcoming and and receiving without reservation others into your life? Is that even possible? It's certainly not natural. does not come from the strength that you possess in and of yourself, by your flesh. But Romans 15 is meant to give you hope. Hope when differences seem insurmountable. Hope when division is discouraging. This text is saturated with hope. Look at verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction so that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound and overflow in Hope. God himself is called the God of endurance and encouragement in verse 5. And endurance, that word, assumes a context of adversity and hardship. There is no need to persevere, to remain steadfast, to press on and endure unless things are hard. Paul says in Romans 5, 3 through 4, suffering produces endurance. Suffering produces endurance. Endurance produces character. Character produces hope. So endurance and hope go together. Romans 8.25, if we hope for what we do not see, that's the nature of hope. You don't yet have what you're hoping for, which can be discouraging. And everything you see with your physical eyes might tell you it's never going to happen. But we hope for what we do not yet see. We wait for it with patience. Same Greek word as this one here, endurance. It's how we wait. We don't just wait begrudgingly. We don't wait impatiently. We wait with long-suffering and with joyful endurance. But what does hope have to do with harmony? Welcome one another, bear one another's burdens, get along with one another. What what does hope have to do with harmony? I'm convinced Paul ends his discussion on these differences and divisions between believers on this note of hope precisely because community is so hard, oftentimes so difficult. Differences so easily become occasions for discouragement, and conflict. Just think in your own life, what is it that you personally find most challenging about living in gospel community? Some people just feel like just rather allergic to people. I'm bothered by people. Their quirks bother me. Their needs bother me. You might be mainly preoccupied with what other people think of you. So being around other people is just exhausting because all you're thinking about is what are they thinking about me? It just presents a barrier to community. Or maybe you just feel consistently let down, left out. Everybody else has their friends and here's just me on the outside always looking on, wishing I could have that. Maybe you are 
fully engaged and committed, and you just look around at others and you are frustrated by their lack of commitment. Why can't they just get on board? Do like I do. Put into this what I put into this. Maybe you notice lack of growth and maturity in others and you're irritated by whatever the case is, right? Wherever you're at, introvert or extrovert, community is hard. It just is. Whatever it is that makes community hard for you, this text is meant to increase your hope in God. Your hope in God's ability to unify his people for his glory. Community is hard, but you can have hope because, here's the claim of the text, God himself has provided for you everything that you need in order to share your life with others who are different from you in gospel community for the glory of God. God has provided everything you need to share your life with one another for the glory of God. Romans 15, 1 through 13 is meant to encourage you. It's meant to sustain your hope in God through all the mundane stuff of everyday life in gospel community, all the unpleasant challenges, all the minor and major differences that come up, and to guarantee gospel community and to give you hope that God is actually going to do this, that this is what he does in his church. This text, I think, gives you four encouragements. The example of Christ, the encouragement of Scripture, the glory of God, and the power of the Spirit. The example of Christ, the encouragement of Scripture, the glory of God and the power of the Spirit. Let's look at those in turn. First, the example of Christ. The the exhortation comes in verses 1 and 2, and it's grounded in the example of Christ. Listen to the first three verses again. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. So Paul continues to speak here in terms of the strong and the weak. In fact, he used, referred to the weak several times in chapter 14. He didn't mention the strong at all until right now. And here he says, strength comes with a duty. If you think you're strong in the, your faith, if you think your conscience is strong, that comes with a responsibility because strength can either be used against those who are weak and vulnerable or strength can be used on behalf of the weak and vulnerable. You're either going to trample people in your strength or you're going to protect them with your strength. You figure out which one God intends strength to be used for. The ESV almost makes it sound like the command is, you know those, those weak people, just, just put up with them. Just tolerate them if you're strong. But that's not it. That's not the heart of the, the command here. The command is bear them up. Carry them. Carry their burdens. And, and supporting and carrying the burdens of the weak is very different than enduring others as a burden, isn't it? I mean, let me help you with that pain in your neck is very different than you are a pain in my neck. Big, big difference. Galatians 6, 2 says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, which is what Paul has been talking about since Romans chapter 12. Love one another. This fulfills the law. How do you do that practically? The practical, specific way Christians fulfill God's command to love one another is by carrying one another's burdens. That's a huge part of our life in community. It assumes people have burdens. And if you're in community with them, you might feel a little bit of the weight of their burdens. And God will give you certain strengths to help carry those burdens and uphold those. Romans 15, 2 confirms the point is not just putting up with, not just tolerating, not just kind of like we can go our separate ways and agree to disagree and I'll just kind of ignore you and let you do your own thing. No, listen to verse two. Let each of us, Please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. That's much more active and 
involved. And all of this is grounded in the example of Christ. Look at verse 3. For, because, since, Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. As proof that Christ put the needs of others ahead of his own, Paul cites Psalm 69, verse 9. That, that entire psalm is messianic. It is multiple verses from that psalm are quoted all throughout the New Testament. It foreshadows, it foretells the work that Christ would do. So the whole thing is referring to, in particular, the death of Christ and his suffering for God's people. And in this verse, the reproaches of those who reproached you, it's talking about reproach toward God, saying all those who hated God, all those who were opposed to God, all of that hatred, all of that vehemence, all of that anger humanity has against God, fell on Christ. He suffered that. He endured that. He willingly suffered the ultimate rejection on your behalf. So if anyone knows what it's like to be mistreated by people, to be rejected, to be hated, if anyone knows how hard community can be, it's Jesus. Even the very few who did not betray him or call for his murder abandoned him at the cross. And he did that, Paul says, not because it was so fun. He wasn't thinking, this is just a delight to do. No, he did that out of love for you, willingly laid down his life to have you for himself forever. And so Paul says, think about that. When you experience the challenges of community, Think about what it costs you to bear a burden for a brother or sister. It, it might cost you some expenditure of energy, right? Maybe some inconvenience of time. Maybe some accommodation in your schedule. Might, might require some financial sacrifice. Some, some kind of output. And Paul says, what is that compared to what Christ endured for you? When he bore the brunt of humanity's hatred toward God. So when a thought goes through your mind like, ugh, this is the last thing I feel like doing right now, turn your mind to Christ. How has he treated you? What did he endure for you? And the point is not to be shamed and guilted into doing something like, ugh, yeah, that's true. I mean, he did so much and I just, uh, I'm such a loser. Why can't I figure this out? No, the point is to be stirred, to be moved by grace that you would, ex you would understand and enjoy the, the glory of God's grace toward you in Christ so that it becomes a joy to you to extend grace to others. That's the point, right? Be moved by grace. And when you find that you're not, you don't just like white knuckle it a little bit more. You just meditate on the glories of Calvary and think about what did Jesus do for me? And that moves you to treat others in that way. Paul grounds this call for unity in the example of Christ again in verse eight when he says Christ became a servant. If anyone was ever strong, you, you think you're strong? This is kind of what he's implying. Those of you who think you're strong, think about Jesus. Did he come and trample on the weak in order to get them to serve and meet his needs? No, he came as a servant and used his power on behalf of the powerless. That's how he treated you. So if you think you have any strength, guess what that's for? It's for those around you who are weak. And here's the really good news about the example of Christ. You don't merely have Christ as an example. I've used this illustration before. If you don't know how to dunk a basketball, and I can't, 
I'll make this personal. I need more than videos of LeBron James dunking a basketball. His example is tremendous. Just doesn't benefit me at all. Too short, too slow, too weak. I need more than an example. To love others like Christ, you need more than just the example of Christ. You personally need to experience the love of Christ. You need an experience of his love. And in verse 7, that's what Paul says you have. Welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you. This is the reality that undergirds all gospel community. Gospel community is not something you strive to build and create and achieve It is a reality that already exists because Christ has already welcomed you in. Isn't that good news? It's already here. Look around. He has welcomed you and you and you and you all the way around. It exists. He made it. He died for this. Therefore, welcoming one another does not create community. It is how we enjoy the community he created when he laid down his life for us. Doesn't that give you hope? (laughs) It's already here, as different as we are. Two, the encouragement of Scripture. After citing Psalm 69.9, pointing to the example of Christ, Paul then adds this comment, and it's, it's like a parenthetical statement where it, it's like he's explaining why he just quoted the Old Testament, which is kind of fascinating. He, he gives a reason, verse 4. For, here's why I just quoted you Psalm 69. I'm talking about Jesus, who came in the New Covenant to fulfill all of the Old, and I'm going to quote from Old Testament scripture, here's why. For whatever was written in former days, in the olden days, it was written for our instruction. That through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. This is instructive for us. Paul makes similar comments in places like Romans 4 and 1 Corinthians 10. Listen to these verses, Romans 4, 23 and 24. But the words, it was counted to him, talking about Abraham and his righteousness from the book of Genesis. Paul says, those words were not written for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. Or listen to 1 Corinthians 10 verse 11. Now these things happened to them as an example. He's talking about Old Testament Israel who went astray and fell into idolatry in the wilderness. And he says, it happened to them as an example, but... They were written down, why? For our instruction, for us on whom the end of the ages has come. This is instructive to us. It teaches us how we should read Scripture. Yes, all of the things you read there happened a long time ago to people who have long since left the face of the earth. Yes, it was written to people, an original audience who spoke a different language at a different time. Yes, all of that is true. And some from that would want to say, therefore, how dare you read the Bible today and think it's for you? It wasn't for you. It was meant for other people. And you, know, you, you can read it and learn some history, but you, you can't expect that it applies to you directly, except that Paul says it does. It's for you. It was written down for you. What happened to them was written down for you. These things were written down for your instruction, for your hope. In fact, Paul cites the Old Testament five times here in this brief passage. And he draws, I think this is significant, from all three of the major divisions of Hebrew Scripture. The the Jews divided Scripture up into the law, the writings, and the prophets. And Paul picks from all three. Twice he uses the phrase, as it is written which is an authoritative declaration. And just consider that for a moment. God's word has been written down. 
written down. The, the benefits of having God's written word are immense. Writing preserves God's commands from generation to generation. Writing preserves God's promises from generation to generation. Writing can be copied and distributed to all people over the face of the earth so that you and you, wherever you are, have access to the same words from God so that you have this unity with the people of God down through history and globally from east to west all over the world because God has given his word in writing. Verse 4, whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. He could have just as easily said whatever was spoken, whatever was proclaimed, whatever was declared. No, whatever was written. So if, if you're tempted to think that, you know, what, what my faith really needs is like a vision. If, if I could just see Jesus, if I could just have some dream, if I could hear an audible voice, then, then I would really believe. Do not discount the power of God's written word to encourage your soul. That's what it's for. That's why he inspired it, to uphold you, to sustain you, to give you hope. When you read God's written word, you're hearing the very voice of God. Verse 4 speaks of the encouragement of the scriptures. And then in verse 5, Paul speaks of the God of encouragement. So, So which is it? Does encouragement come from scripture or from God? Yes. Because when you read scripture, you're hearing God. The God of encouragement, giving you encouragement through Scripture. There's no distinction between God and His Word. His Word communicates His mind, His heart, His love, His truth. All that He is, He communicates to you through written Scripture, which is for you. And in His Word, God has provided His people in every single generation with all that we need to live in God-glorifying unity. In verses 9 through 12, Paul cites these four different Old Testament passages Sites from Deuteronomy and from Psalms and from Isaiah. And each one foretold that one day the Gentiles would worship God with the Jews in this harmonious, glorious praise to God for his mercy. Those are promises. And he's pointing people to those saying, believe that. God said he was going to do it. And look, look around you. You think community's hard, but what you're actually experiencing is the fulfillment of God's promises throughout history. Be encouraged. These promises are for you today. Number three, God gives you his own glory as a cause of hope. Despite the fact that relationships are hard, gospel community is messy, you can abound in hope that God will continue to build his church for his glory. Why does Paul pray God would grant unity? Verse six, so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why did Christ welcome you? Verse 7. For the glory of God. Why did Jesus come as a servant to the Jews? Verse 8. To show, to prove, to vindicate, to display publicly God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises. Why did Jesus come for the Gentiles? What was his purpose toward them? Verse 9. In order that... The Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. You get the theme? Preoccupying Paul? What is really at stake in all of this is the glory of God. That is God's ultimate purpose in unifying different people, diverse people together in the church through Christ. Worship is the goal. Not just unity. United worship. 
Jews and Gentiles together, praising God. We have in verses 9 through 12, singing to his name, rejoicing in God, extolling God, hoping in God together. The, the glory of God is the ultimate aim of gospel community. And that's why you can be encouraged and have hope. God will not fail to bring this about. It's for his own glory. And if the glory of God is one of those vague concepts, I, th- I think it's easy to you know, let that fall into kind of Christianese, religious vernacular, the, the glory of God. What, what do we mean by that? Think of it this way. God's glory is God's goodness publicly displayed for your enjoyment, for your benefit, for your good. God's goodness displayed for your good. God's glory is all that he is working for you. Romans 15, he's, he's the God of endurance and encouragement. Who benefits from that? You do. Verse 8, he shows his truthfulness. His truthfulness is an aspect of his glory. He confirms his promises, his covenant-making, covenant-keeping ways. That's a dimension of his glory. And who benefits from that? Those who receive the promises. It's for us. Verse 9, he's merciful towards sinners. His mercy is part of his glory. He is the ruler of nations and the hope of all the earth. In verse 12, he is the one who makes it possible for you to live in unity. He's the one who fills you with joy and peace in believing. This is all that God is, all of his goodness for you, for your joy, for your unity together with one another. And this is why Jews and Gentiles worship God with one voice. Because they have both come to experience his mercy and believe his promises and benefit from his truthfulness and receive his encouragement. They've been empowered by his spirit. That They have a shared experience of God Together, you, you see, the object of hope for the Christian is not the community itself. The object of hope is God. And when you experience God's goodness, and somebody very different from you also experiences God's goodness, then you have a shared experience of God's goodness. And suddenly you have unity, and you didn't even do anything. You just received God's goodness toward you. And you look around, and you go, you, your sins have been forgiven too? Isn't that the best thing in the world? You've experienced the Spirit of God empowering you and sanctifying you and changing you. This is amazing. What did you do to earn it? Nothing. Neither did I. It's God's glory that unites people. You see, there's this like ecumenical movement in the world. You know, the church is supposed to be unified, so maybe we can unify the church. And so a lot of times what people do is they, they just raise this flag that says unity. And they wave that flag and just hope people will gather together. Like, we're trying to unify everybody. Come be unified around unity for unity's sake. And it just doesn't go very well or last very long. And soon they fall off into weird doctrinal errors and stuff because all they were trying to do is unite around unity. But you wave the banner of the gospel, the glory of God's grace in Christ, you find that you have unity with everybody who gathers there at that banner. Does that make sense? Unity is not the aim in and of itself the glory of God is. Unity is an act of worship. When you hear the phrase praise and worship, probably what comes into your mind first is like music and singing. That's a dimension of it, right? Through singing we can express praise to God. But God-glorifying activity includes far more than singing. According to Romans 15, generous fellowship with one another is worship. Fellowship with others is worship. So if you are sharing your life with others in community, eating meals together, spending time together, getting along together, you don't think, well, what are we doing here? You are glorifying God (laughs) because you are gathered with others around the gospel 
enjoying the goodness of God together, that is glorifying to God. Getting along glorifies God. I, maybe I'm the only one who has this experience, but I, I just think it, it can be easy to go off on your own and have a nice quiet time, devotional you know, prayer and meditate on God's word and feel very spiritual, come back to reality your home, with your kids, at work, whatever stress is there, suddenly, like, all of your spirituality just feel very fleshly all of a sudden. God is not just glorified in our personal quiet times. He's glorified when we live in community with people who are different from us and love one another and bear one another's burdens, and that's messy. It doesn't feel as spiritual as a nice quiet time by yourself. But you can be assured where that's happening, it is very spiritual. Which brings us to the last point, the power of the Spirit. Look at verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. By the power of the Spirit. Hope, joy, peace, harmony with people who are different from you, those are supernatural works of God. That is a work of the Spirit. This, this is how God gets the glory in gospel community. He gets the glory by doing all the work, creating the community. The, the church is a spiritual community, and when we say a spiritual community, we mean way more than saying a group of people who happen to be interested in spiritual things. No, we mean a community formed by the Spirit, filled by the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit, characterized by the Spirit, people marked by the Spirit. That's what makes it a spiritual community. According to verse 5, it is God who grants you to live in harmony with one another. Verse 13, it's God who fills you with joy and peace as you trust in Him. So how do you experience that? How do you experience the power of the Spirit filling you, producing boundless hope in you? I, I know from experience a lot of Christians here, God grants this. And then they look at their life and they say, well, I don't have that, so God must not want me to have that. He must hate me. He loves everybody else, but he doesn't love me because I don't have very much of that. This is just the wrong way to think about this. Scripture always holds together perfectly God's sovereignty and human responsibility. No notice how Paul goes back and forth between commands to believers and prayers to God. Command, bear one another's burdens. Prayer, may God grant you to live together in harmony. Command, welcome one another. Prayer to God, May God fill you with joy and peace. We know from verses 4 and 5 that the Spirit works through the Word to give you encouragement, to sustain you. But we can be even more specific. Again, from verse 13, the Spirit produces hope and joy and peace in you. How? May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing. In Believing. So if you want to experience more hope by the power of the Spirit, you, you open up the Word of God, read it, and believe every word you read. Believe what He says. And if you come across something, you go, ah, I think this way. Then repent. Change your mind and believe what Scripture says as you come to understand what it means. So if you're in despair, the God of hope will fill you with joy as you believe His Word. If you're anxious, the God of hope will fill you with peace as you believe His Word. If you're weary and discouraged, the God of endurance and encouragement will sustain you through the scriptures. As you turn away from lies you're believing, idolatrous desires that fill your heart, 
You turn to his word, the truth God has spoken, and you believe that. In that way, the power of God's spirit will cause you to increase and abound in hope. And for all those reasons, then you can be assured, unity with others is possible by God's grace. Right now as we speak, Todd Novak and Pastor Greg are over in Amman, Jordan, the other side of the world, training a group of pastors from South Asia. And on their first day together, they had some sightseeing. I mean, they're in a pretty significant part of the world in terms of biblical history. Nation of Jordan, they're on the east side of the Jordan River. And so they went down to the Jordan River. And I want you to hear how Todd described an event that took place there in one of his prayer updates this last week. Todd wrote, at the place where the Holy Spirit descended on Christ when he was baptized by John in the Jordan River, so long ago, two countries met. This happened while they were there. One is primarily the children of Isaac, Israel. On the other side of the river is the nation of Israel. And there was a group gathered over there. The other, children of Ishmael, Muslim, the the people that he was with on, on this side. On the Jordanian side are a group of pastors from South Asia singing in Urdu. They are despised by many in their own country. And on the Israeli side is a group of Palestinian Christians. They also are a stench to many of their countrymen, thought to be traitors. And though some in these two groups likely speak English, the language in which they communicated across the river with each other was foreign to both, maybe 40 feet away. And a guard on the Jordanian side informed us that he is expected to shoot anyone who tries to cross the Jordan to the Israeli side, just to give you an idea. And these two groups came together, calling back and forth to each other. They prayed the Lord's Prayer together. They sang psalms in Urdu together, Christians on either side. Todd writes this, these two groups came together and spoke about the one who was baptized between them, giving witness to Christ's mission to unite humanity because he bridges all divides and overcomes all barriers. And it gave witness to a Holy Spirit still at work at a place where he was once made manifest. Isn't that powerful? Spirit of God manifested in a dove on Christ when he's baptized, and 2,000 years later, think about the progress that the gospel has made on earth to unite people from diverse backgrounds, people who have a shared experience of the glory of God in Christ who died for their sins. So take heart, brothers and sisters. In spite of your sin and your failures and your limitations and your differences, God has provided you with all that you need to share your lives with one another in gospel community to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we experience encouragement as we open up your word. And I pray that these would not merely be words we hear, but that these would be realities now that we experience and live together. That you would do this for us, just as Paul prayed that you would do it for those Christians in Rome so long ago. God, would would you fill us with joy and peace in believing? Would you grant us endurance and encouragement? Would you grant us to live together in such harmony with one another that we would together with one voice glorify 
you, the God and Savior of our Lord Jesus Christ, would you create this? You have already welcomed us. We're not striving to earn anything. We are receiving by faith the righteousness of Christ, our Savior. Now we want to live this week in the mundane stuff of Mondays and Tuesdays and Wednesdays and Thursdays and Fridays. We, we want to experience your grace uniting us to one another so that our joy in Jesus would be even deeper because of the diverse people you have brought together for the praise of your name. Amen.